0: Section 1 of The Luck of the Dudley Grams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Luck of the Dudley Grams, as related in extracts from Elizabeth Graham's Diary. By Alice Calhoun Haynes. Section 1. November 26th through November 30th. New York, Wednesday, November 26th. We are the Dudley Gramps, four children and a mother. We are very poor and keep a boarding house. Not because we like boarders, but because when dear father died, a $3,000 life assurance and this house were our only available assets, as Uncle George, who was executor, explained, and so you must take boarders. We do, but it isn't always pleasant. The $3,000 did not last long, either for there were a great many debts to be met that nobody had known anything about, and we had to have the library repapered and a new carpet in the hall to impress the people who came to look for rooms. We must be very polite and charming too, said Ernie, and talk as hard as we can all the time, and then perhaps they won't notice how shabby the rest of the things are. But I fancy they did, because it was over two months before we could get anybody to stop with us, and the money in the bank grew less and less, while Uncle George grew more grim and disapproving, and said that dear father had been criminally careless, and that no man should be permitted to have a family if he did not know enough to provide for it. But at last Miss Brown came, and then Mrs. Hudson, and the Hancocks, and now we are really beginning to get along. Father was Uncle George's only brother. He was an inventor and a true genius, but unfortunately nobody ever discovered this except just us. He knew all about air currents, the contractile bladders of fish, and the flight of birds. There is a great ghostly flying machine in the workshop in the attic, with dusty yellow sails and a really wonderful motor. Hayes, who sleeps in the workshop since he was obliged to give up his room to the boarders, often dreams that he is taking trips at night. He says the dreams are quite horrible and calls them nightmares, but if only dear father had lived to perfect the machine, we are sure that it would have been a success and that would have been so pleasant, for father never had any successes except just once, which we did not profit by, as I will tell later. Hayes is my chum. He is fifteen and I am seventeen, but sometimes we feel a hundred, because there are so many things to worry about. Dearest mother never worries. She is too Irish for that. All she cares for, she says, is that her children shall be happy and good and clever and have everything they want." Somehow she seems to believe that we are what she wishes us to be, too, so that one would feel ashamed to appear discontented. But, oh, if you love your family the way I do, it is hard, hard, hard to be poor. However, to return to our mutton, in this case Hayes, his real name is John Hazard, though he is never called John or Jack, only Hazard or Hayes or Hazy, especially the last two because they fit so well for, though he is very clever and half through high school already, he is not a bit practical, never sees what goes on about him, and is always forgetting things. He does not care about athletics, either. He hasn't the build, he says, his legs being too thin, nor the time nor the money. He is in his junior year this term, the youngest in his class, and at present he is cramming like mad, so that he can take the final examinations next fall and begin to help the family." that means giving up college, his fondest dream. It is mighty noble of Hazy, but I must confess not at all becoming. His face seems to grow smaller day by day, and his eyes behind his goggly glasses bigger. Dear haze he doesn't even have time to talk to me anymore, and that is why I thought of starting a diary. My cousin Mita has kept one for over a year, a dainty little volume with gold clasps and a red morocco binding." This is just an ugly old account book of father's that I found in the workshop. The first few pages are full of the most amazing aerial computations, but there is plenty of room left for writing, and one must have somebody to confide in. After Hazard comes Ernestine. She is twelve and is frequently called Ernie, which name suits her just as well as Hayes' names do for him. For she is really more of a boy than a girl, we think, despite her charming blue eyes and rose-leaf complexion. Ernie is very, very pretty, has sweet ways, and a really lovely disposition. But for all this she is rather a trying child, for she is continually getting into scrapes, tearing her frocks, breaking the furniture, etc., and she always means so well that it is hard to scold her. Jeff is Ernestine's chum, just as hazard is mine. He is Uncle George's son, but so much more like a brother than a cousin that I am going to describe him here. He is fourteen years old, and the direct opposite of Hayes in nearly every way. He is a handsome fellow, big for his age, and rather sullen sometimes. That, I think, is because he is not happier at home. He goes to a fashionable school, plays football and hockey, and is perfectly hopeless in his studies. Uncle George maintains he could do better if he would. Aunt Adelaide, who is Jeffrey's stepmother, says it is a case of inherent stupidity. Mother thinks neither is right, and that there is something radically wrong with the school methods. Altogether, it is not pleasant for Jeff, who wants to give up studying and go into business. This enrages Hazard. A fellow with your chances, he says. I'd swap them for yours, answers Jeff, who is not brilliant at an argument. And Hayes snorts derisively. After Ernie comes Robin. He is six and our baby. He has never been strong, because when he was a tiny mite of a thing, a careless nurse dropped him and injured his hip. He has bright, dark eyes, and you can always tell when he is coming by the little hopping sound he makes with his crutch. It reminds one of a bird, so his name suits him, too. I love Robin better than anything in the world, and I am never going to marry so that I can stay with him and take care of him always, but this is a secret and that, including mother, whom one can't describe because she is too wonderful, is all there are of us, except the kitten, which is black and is named Rosebud, and the cook, who is also black and is named Rose. Of course, we did not name the kitten after the cook, it just happened that way. As to Uncle George's family, whom we call the George Grahams, they are very wealthy and have a beautiful house and horses and plenty of servants, but we would not change with them, no, indeed. When Uncle George comes to visit us of a Sunday morning, as he sometimes does to see how we are getting on, he is sure to stand in the middle of our shabby back parlor and puff out his cheeks and throw out his chest and say, "'I don't pretend to be a man of genius like your father. I went into business at fifteen years of age. I've pegged away a good forty years since then, and I guess I've managed to get pretty much what I want out of the world. Talent doesn't pay, sir. No, sir. It's common sense that pays.' Aunt Adelaide, who is Uncle George's second wife, is handsome and fashionable. She was a widow with one daughter when Uncle George married her. So you see that Mita is really no relation to either Jeff or ourselves. She is six months older than I, and she and Jeff do not get along so very well. She thinks him stupid because he does not like the things she likes, and he thinks her silly and affected. I am afraid sometimes she is. Georgie is both Mita and Jeff's half-brother. He is a little younger than our Robin. He has very rosy cheeks and beautiful clothes and expensive toys. Once, when he was sick for two weeks with German measles, a trained nurse was engaged, and he had chicken broth and oranges every day. Sometimes I hate Georgie, which is wicked. Uncle George is devoted to his family, after his own fashion, and does not spare any expense where they are concerned, though he himself dresses plainly and never gives anything in charity. He says he does not believe in it, and that no one ever gave anything to him. One day, when he was standing in the middle of our parlor with his cheeks puffed out as usual, Robin, who had been sitting in the window turning the pages of an animal picture book, looked up. "'Did you ever wish you were a camel, Uncle George?' he asked. "'No, I can't say I ever did,' answered Uncle George, condescendingly. "'Why should I now?' "'It would be so much easier for you to get into heaven,' chirped Robin." And after a minute, when Uncle George had thought it over and began to understand, he laughed and really felt rather flattered. Dear Father was so different. I said I would tell about his one success and how we did not profit by it as we should. It was a great pity, because most of the problems Father worked on had no market value at all. He was too brilliant to find it easy to consider commercial interests. But this was different, something quite sellable and practical, a mechanical attachment for dump carts. However Father came to think of it, he admitted that he did not know. He quite despised it, and was really rather ashamed even to explain the way it worked. But he made up his mind that for once a little money would be nice, so he took the model to Uncle George and asked for a loan. But Uncle George's own affairs were rather involved just at that time. And besides, he said he did not care for investments of such a nature. He never had much faith in Father. After that, Father was introduced to Mr. Perry, a lawyer and promoter, and a partnership was arranged between them, by which Father was to receive five hundred dollars down, and in one year's time five per cent of whatever income the invention continued to realize. The contract was drawn up, for Father read it aloud to us one day at the lunch table. "'I'll go around to Perry's this afternoon,' he said, and get this thing settled and off my mind. We were all quite excited, for it was a long time since we had had anything to spend.' I remember we sat in the window seat in the dining room and planned our winter clothes, Hayes, Ernie, and I, for nearly two hours. However, we none of us saw Father when he came home. He went directly to his workshop, and about ten minutes later, as Rose was passing the door, she thought she heard him call. So she peeped in and saw him standing, supporting himself with one hand on the table. He tried to speak, but could only groan, and the next instant he fell to the floor. Dear Father, It all seems like yesterday now that I write it. Rose gave the alarm. Somehow we got him downstairs and into bed, but he did not recognize any of us, and the next morning at three o'clock he died. Dr. Porter said the attack was brought on by worry and brain fatigue. It seems so sad just on the eve of his first success, for nearly all the carts one meets throughout the city nowadays dump in Father's Way, though the patent bears Mr. Perry's name. And we never found the contract mr perry says he knows nothing about it and that he never signed any he has his brother as witness to a verbal agreement entered into that same afternoon in his office by which father sold the model outright for five hundred dollars which was paid to him the same date by check it is true that mr perry paid father we found the check in his waistcoat pocket but it was only on account we feel sure without the contract however we can prove nothing and are quite helpless could father have lost it, or left it anywhere that afternoon? Even a little income would be very nice, for then perhaps we would not have to take boarders. There is Mrs. Hudson's bell. She is rung twice. Rose won't answer it. I must fly. Saturday, November twenty-ninth. Blue, blue, blue. Oh, dear, I do feel blue, and so does everyone else, even the kitten. In the first place, the house is cold. We have not been able to get the dining-room above 58 degrees at any time today, and the boarders appear to believe that we keep it at that cozy temperature out of pure spite and malevolence. My friend, Mrs. Beau Gardis, considers it a stupid form of suicide to economize coal in such weather, Mrs. Hudson remarked this morning. We had not been economizing, but nevertheless we felt crushed. For whenever Mrs. Hudson has a criticism to make, it comes under cover of the same potent name. Perhaps I don't spell it quite correctly, but so it is invariably pronounced. None of us has ever met Mrs. Gardis, None of us ever expect to meet her. She is sort of a cousin to the famous Mrs. Harris, we are sometimes tempted to believe. But it is through her reported remarks that we are given the coveted if immensely overestimated, advantage of seeing ourselves as others see us. This morning's none-too-flattering vision resulted in Hayes being sent down to shake up the furnace, which did not prevent Miss Brown from wearing her pink-knitted shawl all day, and sniffing, and rubbing the red tip of her nose. Just why these artless actions should have enraged me I don't know, but somehow they did. As Ernie once sagely remarked, however innocent a boarder's habits— they are bound to be unpleasing then too i broke the string of my mandolin and i have not five cents in the world with which to buy another it is almost amusing to be as poor as that also hayes is growing cross as well as homely because it does not agree with him to study late at night last evening when i put on my golf cape and ran up to the workshop for a little chat i found the poor boy sitting in the flying machine with his overcoat on it is cold in the workshop let me tell you pegging away at his Latin. He looked up over his glasses and scowled at me. "'Won't it make you dream worse than ever to sit there, dear?' I asked. "'The sails keep the drafts off,' answered Hazard, in sepulchral tones. "'What are you studying, Hayes?' I ventured next. "'My lessons,' came the communicative croak. "'Nice chummy conversation, that.' So I retired. But I suppose I may as well be honest and admit that none of the reasons I have mentioned yet have anything to do with making me unhappy. It is about Robin. We ought to take such good care of him, and we can't. Thursday he caught cold, sitting on the drafty floor, and, as usual, it settled in his little lame side. So mother kept him in bed yesterday morning, and I amused him with games and stories, but after lunch he grew feverish and tired. "'Would you like me to read again, Bobsy?' I asked. "'No, thank you, honey,' he answered, and turned his head wearily among the pillows." would you like to play tommy come tickle me or thumbs up (sighs) no dear they aren't a bit of good when your legs ache sing please what shall i sing i asked about heaven said bobbsey like we did last sunday night it wasn't a bit priggish the way he said it just simple and wistful and very sweet so i took him in my arms in the big rocking-chair and sang him all the heaven hymns i know first there's a home for little children then, Jerusalem the Golden, and I heard a sound of voices around the great white throne, with harpers harping on their harps to him that sits thereon. When I came to that last beautiful verse, O Lamb of God who reignest, thou bright and morning star, whose glory lightens that new earth which now we see from far, O worthy Judge Eternal, when thou dost bid us come, then open wide the gates of pearl and call thy servants home the thought flashed through me, What if God should really take Robin from us, him, too, as well as father? And I stopped singing and hugged him tight, and hurt his little aching back. What's the matter, Elizabeth? asked Bobsey fretfully. I was just going to sleep. Nothing, honey, I answered. But that night, after I had gone to bed, the terror returned, and I could not get any peace or rest. I could not say my prayers right, either, for it seemed as if heaven were full of harping and singing voices, and God would not hear. So I tossed and turned, till finally I woke Ernie. "'What's the matter, Elizabeth?' she asked, just as Robin had. "'Oh, Ernie,' I answered, "'I'm so unhappy. I've been thinking that perhaps Bobsey is going to die.' "'Well, of course we're all going to, some day,' answered Ernie sleepily. "'But she slipped her hand into mine like a cuddlesome kitten, and somehow I felt comforted. "'Dr. Porter says that what Robin needs is all the luxuries, that is, to go away in the summer to the seashore or mountains, to have good nourishing food, proper clothing, and plenty of fresh air all the year round, and neither to be overstimulated nor worried. Nice possible prescription, that. Uncle George means to do what is right, I am sure.' But oh, why can't he say, here's five thousand dollars, take it and make Robin well. If it were Georgie who was ill, that reminds me that Jeff was in this afternoon, quite sulky and injured because he had to go to the opera this evening. Mita has a friend staying with her, he explained, and they prance around and see everything. That's all right, but why do they have to lug me along? Poor Jeff, purred Ernie, who was always sympathetic. What is it going to be? oh no, i don't know answered Geoffrey. they're all the same a fellow in pink pants gets up and bellows at the top of his lungs ish leap a dish the lady answers to the same tune only shriller and then they both die giddy show that we could not help laughing but how i wish we were going in jeff's place mother would be sorry if she could see what i have written today. i think she would call it cowardly she always faces things so bravely dear mother And if she can be cheerful and light-hearted, I am sure the rest of us should be. I'll try. I will. I will. Whatever comes. Sunday, November 30th. Robin is better. This morning he woke, quite free from pain, so mother has let him up again. Perhaps God did hear, in spite of the harping. Foolish Elizabeth. End of section 1. Recording by Colleen McMahon